welcome to the podcast of ideas. Last year at the Barbican in central London, we hosted the 14th of our annual Battle of Ideas festivals with 450 speakers on over 100 panels, attracting an audience of about three and a half thousand people across the weekend, all keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our day. You can access audio and video from these discussions on this podcast and our YouTube channel. The following session is titled From Anti-Vaxxers to Alfie's Army, Have We Lost Faith in Medical Science? In it, a panel of doctors, psychologists, neuroscientists and historians ask whether or not the anti-vax movement is simply anti-science or even anti-intellectual. Is it healthy to have more sceptical intellectual currents to hold the scientific establishment to account? And when it comes to controversial end-of-life decisions, are they simply about emotion versus reason? Or are there important points of principle that need to be considered and debated between doctor, patient and family? Welcome uh, to the uh, Sunday morning session. It's the opening session of our biomedical dilemma strand, which will all be happening in here today. Uh, Just first kind of uh, point of housekeeping, some of you may have realised in the program, we had two women and two men scheduled to speak on this. Uh, Clarissa Seamas from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine had to uh, attend uh, an emergency meeting about vaccinations, funnily enough, uh, in the Middle East. And so sh- uh, she won't be here. She sent her deepest apologies, but we have uh, a wonderful replacement who I will be introducing when I introduce the panel. My name is Max Anderson, and I make podcasts and videos for The Guardian, uh, where I specialize uh, mainly in science. And the reason I specialize in science is because my background, uh, I was a neuroscience undergrad. And so this idea that we're going to talk about this morning, you know, have we lost faith in medical science, was something that I had never really thought of, partly because I was on course to becoming, you know, a medical scientist, uh, and partly just because coming from science, uh, I just believed what doctors told me. So if doctors told me to get a jab, if doctors told me to take some medication, I would do it. And so this question of sort of trust or faith in medical science didn't really come to me until my darling older sister had a baby about a year ago and she's based over in Ireland and when it came to talking about vaccinations for this for my nephew as some of you might be aware there's a kind of big anti-vax tide in Ireland that seems to be rising against specifically against uh, HPV vaccine and so a lot of her friends are anti-vax and so she you know quite rightfully said I want to make an informed decision about this so I said I would help her uh, partially because I was hoping to convince her to get vaccinations. Um, and so we kind of read literature on, on both sides and talked about it quite frequently. And the thing that always kind of came up in our conversations was this idea of trust. Um, whether that's kind of, you know, do you trust a fellow newborn mother who kind of tells you that they saw the change in their child's eyes versus, you know, the accumulated kind of anonymous data of science, uh, in Ireland, there was, at the time, a big kind of government cover-up, the HSE, which is kind of like the NHS, but not really. But the HSE uh, had covered up. There was wrong cancer diagnosis given out to women, and it turned out that they had kind of intentionally tried to cover that up. So there's trust in kind of government. There was obviously Big Pharma behaving badly, which we all know a lot about, and their kind of financial connections to doctors. And then 
Once I read it a little bit more, there was this idea of kind of state-sponsored medical intervention, and especially in the States, uh, it was brought to my attention that as recently as the kind of 70s and 80s, there was a lot of forced sterilization of women, a lot of them in correctional facilities, and a lot of them from marginalized groups. And so it kind of got me thinking about trust and whether or not we should all trust medical doctors as much as we do, but also, because it centered around this idea of trust, uh, I realized it wasn't just kind of anti-vaccination. That was potentially symptomatic of, of a bigger issue. And when it comes to things like end-of-life decisions as well, there's this kind of constant tension between autonomy, whether that's parental or, or familial, and this kind of uh, authoritative, you know, this is what's best for you, and I know that because I'm a doctor. And so this morning session, I kind of want to explore some of those things and you know, firstly, are we losing trust in medical science? So as the blurb said, according to the Ipsos Mori Veracity Index, we kind of trust doctors and nurses more than any other profession. So is it that anti-vaxxers and, you know, the likes of Alfie's army, are they just a very vocal minority? Or, or is there a kind of rising levels of distrust? And then kind of on the flip side of that, so that we're going to cover quite a lot, with taking all this kind of historical and, and cultural and social stuff in, into into context, should we all be slightly more sceptical of those sort of uh, medical authorities in power? So my wonderful panel, in the order they will be speaking, uh, first up will be Dr. Michael Fitzpatrick. Uh, Michael is a general practitioner based in London. He has written on a wide range of subjects, including epidemics, addictions, and health scares. He is also author of Defeating Autism, A Damaging Delusion, and MMR and Autism, What Parents Need to Know. Next up will be Dr. Kevin Yule. Kevin is a senior lecturer in American history from the University of Sunderland with a particular concentration on American intellectual history. Kevin is also the author of Assisted Suicide, The Liberal Humanist Case Against Legalization. Uh, following Kevin will be Richard Clark, who is currently based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Richard is a health psychologist and PhD candidate with the Vaccine Confidence Project, where he looks at, amongst other things, risk perception. And then last but certainly not least will be Dr. Claire Gerarda, a practicing GP, uh, who was the head of the Royal College of GPs, first female head of the Royal College of GPs for 50 years. And she knows a little about a lot, which is what she told me to say. So, uh, without further ado, first up, uh, Dr. Michael Fitzpatrick. There's an article in the current uh, edition called the American Journal of Public Health called Weaponized Health Communication, Twitter Bots and Trolls Influence Vaccine Discussion. Online discussion about vaccination has become weaponized with attempts to spread misinformation by foreign powers. The only foreign power referred to is Russia using similar tactics to those used in the 2016 U.S. elections. Well, this is a scary prospect, the weaponization of vaccine discussion. And I think actually it reflects the underlying problem of a lot of uh, the de debate about vaccine, which is, has become weaponized, it has become politicized in a way which is uh, contributed to what they call at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, vaccine hesitancy, which is quite un understandable. I'd just like to discuss that a bit. I'd begin by just cautioning about one of the terms that's used in the introductory blurb to this session where it refers to an ever-present anti-vaccination movement signalling the sort of 19th century campaigns against smallpox as though anti-vaccination campaigns are something that are always with us. I don't think that's actually the case. Vaccine 
campaigns and vaccine scares are highly historically specific, indeed geographically specific. Because you often see, if you look back over the last few years, we've seen lots of different scares. The MMR scare, for example, began very specifically in the United Kingdom and spread a bit into the English-speaking world. Never actually really made it into continental Europe. You talk to people in France or Germany, MMR never became an issue there. Mind you, in France, they have a scare about hepatitis B. That hepatitis B has been linked to multiple sclerosis which nobody in Britain has ever heard about, and nobody ever, ever, you know, you never come across people objecting to it on that basis. In America, there was a big campaign against vaccines containing mercury as a preservative uh, 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 antiseptic. Uh, that was a big issue in the States. It hasn't really spread f from the States to other countries, uh, and though they, they did take up a bit on the MMR lately, uh, and there was all, all, lots of rather awkward attempts to cross-fertilize the MMR and the mercury scares, because, of course, everyone knows there's no mercury in MMR because it's a, a, a live vaccine. Then you get something like the human, which Max referred to, the human papillomavirus, the wart virus uh, vaccination has been introduced for teenage girls to pre prevent, uh, in the long run, cervical cancer. That's been fated as a great success. There was an article in The Lancet last week from Australia saying that they, they anticipate because of the great success of the HPV campaign in Australia, they may be able to eradicate cervical cancer entirely in Australia in the foreseeable future. Indeed, in, in the UK, it's been regarded as such a success over the last 10 years, particularly with teenage girls, that next year it's going to be rolled out for teenage boys as well. And they're, they're very confident about that. Meanwhile, in Japan... The HPV, uh, which was started, the campaign started rather late. Uh, it was introduced in 2013 in, in, in April. Three months later, the, gov the government, it was introduced a bit early, but the government launched a campaign backing of the medical profession to promote it. Three months later, after reports of adverse reactions in the Japanese media, the government suspended its encouragement for uh, the HPV vaccine. And the uptake has dropped in Japan from around 70 to 80% to less than 1%. In, in many areas, a really spectacular fall in, in uptake. Much greater fall than, for example, you used to talk about the MMR uh, scare in Britain. That only produced a fall of about 10% in the uptake of the vaccine from about 90% to 80%. This is down to 1%. So, you know, that was a very particular reaction. And if you look at the Japanese case, there are all sorts of particular local reasons why that might be the case. There's a history of uh, corruption in the pharmaceutical industry, a history of corrupt relations between pharmaceutical companies and government, a history of, of uh, medical scandals, thalidomide, uh, HIV-contaminated blood products, some of which are familiar in this country as well, mad cow disease, CJD uh, issue, a whole number of uh, issues, environmental uh, scandals as well, which uh, created, in, once there were significant uh, reports of adverse reactions, a real uh, resonance in the Japanese uh, public that led to the vaccine uh, declining. So I think if you're talking about vaccine scares, you have to look very specifically <coughs> at the local situation to understand what's going on. Because actually, and this is one of the things why they're interesting, they're never about what they seem to be about. They're always about some wider set of issues. And they're usually about a set of issues which, which, once they're broadened from the narrow discussion of the, the medical and scientific indications around the vaccine to bring in wider political and cultural issues, then uh, you've got a problem. Just as in one illustration of this, I'll just tell you a brief story of the HPV in the USA, where it was first got the, vaccine, the Gardasil vaccine, which is the first uh, anti-HPV vaccine marketed by the drug company Merck. 
uh, in 2006, they, they rushed through authorization of this with the uh, federal uh, agency that, that monitors these things. And they pushed it through with massive lobbying by Merck and massive uh, promotion of it to the uh, medical world and in the political world, largely because they, were, they saw coming down the line that the rival company, GSK, the British-based company, were also trying to get through their product, uh, uh, Cervix, which is, was approved a couple of years later. But they were very keen to get this uh, uh, on the market as soon as possible. And so they put an enormous amount of money, both uh, publicly and behind the scenes, to do that. And one of the places where this first came to the fore was in Texas, where the government, the, the, the state government was, was persuaded to make it not only to authorize and to support a campaign for it, but also to make it mandatory. And the government, Gov Governor Perry, conservative Republican in Texas, was the driving force behind that. Well, within a few months of this uh, being gone through, and people say, well, why, why did you have to make the vaccine mandatory? That, in other words, that kids wouldn't be allowed into school unless they had the vaccine, which is, has been the rule in, in many American states in relation to early childhood vaccines. Because many of the public health people, well, why does it have to be mandatory? And it was obviously Merck that wanted it to be mandatory because it meant a bigger market for their product. But the argument that it increased herd immunity in any way was spread from in the, the notion of vaccines in relation to infectious diseases like measles, where you want a high level of uptake to prevent it spreading. But actually, HPV doesn't spread in that way, so it didn't make any sense at all. And so it people say, what's all that about? Well, of course, what it was all about is that Governor Perry, it turned out, had received very substantial campaign donations from Merck. And so a great backlash, once this was revealed, a big backlash ensued. That's a, just an illustration of how the vaccine uptake issue becomes embroiled in a political and then wider cultural controversy. And even then, the evangelical Christians actually weren't bothered about the, there was an issue of, you know, did it encourage teenage promise? Actually, they, they weren't bothered about that. They only objected to it being made mandatory which it wasn't a good idea in the first place anyway. And so what you see is that people react against not the, the science and the medical recommendation, but when it becomes uh, politicized and uh, involved in, a, a, in the wider cultural controversies. The New England Journal of Medicine concluded about this, cancer prevention has fallen victim to the culture wars. And that's what, what happened here. People react not on the basis of the scientific and, and, and medical knowledge, but on the basis of the wider politics. And that, that is an indication of how you, you're, you're not going to get very far in trying to challenge vaccine hesitancy by persuading people of the scientific and medical virtues of the vaccine if you've got this wider climate that's been con conducted around it. Thank you, Michael. Uh, so next up, Kevin. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert in medicine as everybody else on the panel. So I want to look at it in a historical sense. And I've looked at, at um, particularly post-war history and the way that the lack of trust has sort of emerged as a, as a phenomenon. And I think there are two aspects of that. One is what I'd call a, a technicalization of, of everything that happens from about 45 onwards where everybody puts their faith into technical solutions for everything. And the second is a, a collapse of authority that we can date from around the late 60s, the early 70s. And I think these two things have contributed to a lot of the confusions that we have today um, over medical issues and the sort of uh, ethical issues as they seem to be fragmenting into. So I think, first of all, medicalization, and, and uh, I have to say Mike Fitzpatrick has written The Tyranny of Health, a uh, very good book, which I completely recommend, um, and uh, the medicalization 
is a historical trend towards understanding moral, political, or social issues as medical problems. And that's the, it frames the, the way we respond to medicine today. With medicalization, we make all sorts of problems that are nothing to do with medicine, really, uh, into medical issues. And I've looked at this from the perspective of uh, assisted suicide, assisted dying, whatever you want to call it. And um, it strikes me that death is not, in the end, a medical problem, ultimately. It's a philosophical problem. It's a personal um, ethical problem. It's not something that should be a treatment. And the, the whole idea of prescribing death as a treatment seems to me to, to expand the authority of medicine far beyond its actual remit. I think medicine should stick to technical problems, I, I suppose. I'm tempted to say get back in its box, but I've realized that there's a whole panel of other uh, medical people who might, might uh, contest that. But it, it's interesting the way this came. We, I mean, we now have the di very recently the disease of knife crime in, in this capital. And to treat it as a disease is completely inappropriate. It's not a disease. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenon. It's something that we need to understand. Uh, but it does not behave like a disease. And uh, I don't think it's, it's a very good thing. Gun crime as well. Is always Guns are now a, an epidemic. You know, you have all of these medical terms to actually describe what are really um, social phenomenon. So in some ways, I think I want to look at, you know, why did this happen and when did this happen? And, and as I said, I've, I've given the dates that I think. And I think the technocracy aspect is really an American issue that comes out of the post-45 uh, period where all of these different problems that had been political, particularly political at first in the past, uh, philosophical um, and they're reduced to technical issues. So J. Edgar Hoover in 1959 uh, spoke of the disease of communism. And not only that, but had all of these charts sort of showing a bacteria and, you know, showing very medical uh, ideas of, of the way that communism spreads. And this, of course, occurs because J. Edgar Hoover could not actually argue against communism in any political sense. And, the, and Americans had this real problem with actually tackling it head on. I think... A lot of these issues are reduced. Uh, medicine was extraordinarily hopeful at the time, and it's worth remembering how much, uh, you know, this was the age of medical miracles of medicine as a panacea for all evils. And so we have an interesting book by David Serlin where he says that Americans gravitated towards medicine as a tool of self-realization. This is also the very interesting book by Ellen Herman as well, who talks about how every problem seems to become a psychological problem during this period of time and how that develops and spreads out. And I think this is very relevant to understanding what we're doing today. Um, in particular, it's uh, medicalization as, as, uh, it is about Americans in particular gravitating, moving from religion into um, and uh, into medicine, and medicine seems to be replacing it. You know, it used to be religious miracles. Now it's medical miracles. Uh, these things are occurring around this period of time. Ultimately, I was looking this up, and I thought, hmm, is this ever going to come across that we're going to see a healthy death? Because health has become a sort of moral aspect, and can you know, a, a healthy death doesn't seem to make any sense. But I'll do a Google search. Sure enough, um, Douglas Smith and Michael Maher healthy death, and there are many articles, you can, you can Google it yourself, and you'll see that, you know, why a healthy death is not an oxymoron, so at least they're aware of the, the specific problem with it. And you realize that health has become a moral uh, aspect, it, that, that 
doctors are the new priests and that, that they have taken over all of these, these actual moral things. And I think this is what um, really creates a problem of trust. Why? Because you have a decentering of moral judgments. Before, you would trust your GP because you would think they, they are under the, the same sort of, they operate the same way I do. Um, and, it, it, you know, a, a doctor or a, a, the head of a hospital would have to make a decision, which was a really clinical decision between an 85-year-old and a 25-year-old. And you would trust that person to make a judgment that you would make. Whereas I think that's what's disappeared now, is that we do not have the the idea that we, we don't trust people to be in the same moral universe as we inhabit. And I think that's because our moral universe has, has fragmented. Right. Okay. Alfie Evans, I think this is, to bring us right up to date, I think this is a really interesting one because I think doctors have believed their own hype. And I think this was the, the problem with Alfie Evans is that there were doctors taking decisions to say that death is in this child's best interest. And that's a profound philosophical problem. That is not a medical clinical decision. You cannot say with any, no doctor can say death is in somebody's best interest because how can you determine that? How can anybody say that, that that's right for an individual? And we seem to have that, you know, it used to be that suffering and death were part of life and it was part of something that we accept. And I think it's interesting to reflect. I haven't got time to go into it. Uh, why suffering and death are not accepted in the same way. And they're seen as medical problems. Suffering and death seem to be medical problems. Yet, in the past, they were always just human problems. They are inevitable. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so next up, Richard. Uh, hi there, everyone. Um, so uh, my name is Richard Clark. I'm uh, with a group called the Vaccine Confidence Project. Uh, so I am their resident uh, psychologist. Uh, I come from a health psychology background. So I don't really have any uh, medical training, as the other on the panel do, but I come from uh, kind of a discipline where we try and take concepts and we try to put some sort of scientific rigor to the studying of that concept. Uh, so uh, when it comes to trust... Uh, we try and pin it down. We try and uh, take something that is very fluffy uh, and we try and find a way to examine the parts of it. One aspect with uh, trust, if you're going to your doctor and you are choosing whether to trust some of their advice, what that uh, trust may do in that situation uh, is take a uh, concept or a um, intervention that has a lot of uh, different kind of evidence behind it and uh, instead of you going out of your way to find all of the information about it and uh, make a weighing kind of decision on the pros and cons of, uh, of that intervention, uh, what you can do is you can use trust like a heuristic, like a kind of a cognitive shortcut, and you can collapse all of that uh, searching for information and weighing up whether it's good information or bad information and collapse it down into a single decision of whether you trust uh, the person that is offering that recommendation. Uh, so uh, this is how we see uh, trust uh, when it comes to uh, the idea of risk management. And this is what I think a lot of, uh, a lot of vaccination decisions are. Are their uh, parents going and uh, talking to their doctor and uh, deciding what is more risky? Is it the disease that is more risky or is it the, the vaccine that's more risky? So this is if people are making these uh, kind of decisions. Uh, but we find that a lot of people just kind of uh, automatically go with trusting uh, 
in the, in the healthcare professional. So uh, we, we take a decision like that and we try and map out, uh, so when does trust fail within these decisions? Uh, and um, often we find that, that parents will um, have two things that they are uh, uh, very focused on when it comes to making a trust decision. Um, one of them is the uh, kind of level of performance or, or the kind of competency of a healthcare professional. Uh, so how are they at their job? Have they made mistakes in the past? Uh, and then the other side of trust is often uh, whether their healthcare professional uh, has the same values as them. So do they uh, care about your child uh, in the same way you do. Like, it's got to be acting in the best interest towards your child. Uh, so this would be the very kind of uh, the, the morality issue within trust. Uh, and uh, when we measure these things, so to measure these, we ask loads of questions, uh, and then we ask on the, the old uh, Likert scale of do you agree to uh, kind of strongly disagree to strongly agree. Uh, so we can ask loads of questions to do with trust. Um, some of them are to do with this kind of moral aspect, and then some of them are to do with this competency aspect. Uh, and what we find is that um, morality will always uh, trump the kind of competency aspect. Uh, so uh, it's uh, more that uh, it doesn't really matter how competent a doctor is if uh, they're, say, um, taking uh, money uh, and incentives for giving the vaccination uh, rather than recommending it due to actually kind of a care and an empathy towards your child. Um, so these are the kind of aspects that, that I look at. We go wider than just the healthcare professional. Uh, we go and uh, we, we take uh, measurements on uh, how much people have trust in the healthcare system in general, um, and then also in uh, things like the science and procedure and the manufacture of vaccination. Uh, so this kind of forms our core uh, level of trust in vaccination. When you have that trust... Uh, that allows information to flow more easily and uh, people uh, seem to, to make a decision to vaccinate. So a lot of my work uh, looks at when trust falls down, uh, do people go and do they look for more information about vaccination? Uh, and if they do, uh, where are they going to go? Uh, what information do they find? And uh, does that affect uh, their decision? Um, so uh, what we often see with that is your finding out that people have this kind of um, feeling towards vaccination uh, before they actually go through the cognitive process of uh, collecting information and weighing it up and weighing up the pros and cons. So when you have this and uh, when you have these kind of feelings beforehand, uh, it does kind of bias the information search process uh, so that people become uh, more confident in their views beforehand. Uh, which can be useful. Uh, so, like, if people have this general feeling towards the HPV vaccine that it's a good thing, uh, they may go to their healthcare professional uh, and just want to get a second opinion. So they go online and they search for some information about HPV, and uh, they feel reassured by it, and then they're more likely to go and vaccinate. Uh, but the flip side does happen, that if you have these strong negative feelings towards vaccination, uh, your healthcare professional suggests it, you may then go away, uh, look for more information, uh, find all of these links that support your view that vaccination is a, is a bad idea at this time, and then you go and bring it to your healthcare professional and, and they disagree with you, and then you have an argument, and then you lose even more trust in the healthcare system. Uh, so what we're doing in the Vaccine Confidence Project is we're trying to 
find out where people are in their feelings towards vaccination. And it's never really this binary thing. Uh, it's all to do with, um, yeah, like Michael said, we, we use the term vaccine hesitancy, uh, which is a scale all the way from anti-vaccination on one extreme uh, to uh, kind of pro-vaccination, don't really think about it that much, automatically vaccinate. Uh, I like looking at the people in the middle. Uh, so these are the people that uh, are uh, questioning uh, vaccination and uh, would just like to have a bit more certainty with it. So we say that they have a decision conflict when it comes to vaccination. So we want to look at them and see how can we change the system or how can we uh, change the way we're communicating about vaccination so that they're moving more towards the end of, uh, of not worrying so much about vaccination. Because we often think that there's a tiny minority that are anti-vaccination. Uh, and it's the people in the middle that we can kind of do something about. Uh, so that's where I kind of go from. Okay, thank you. And our final speaker, Dr. Claire Gerarda. Thank you very much. And I'll hopefully cover some issues that haven't already been covered. And as you heard in the introduction, I'm a GP. I've actually worked in the health service for 45 years. So I'm a lot younger than I look. No. I started work when I was about 14. And so my experience of the health service uh, is pretty long. And I really want you to know that so that you can see where I come from. So you've heard that there's a lot of trust uh, that people have for doctors and nurses. In fact, if you ask what trust you have for the average man in the street, it's about 60%. So you trust him or her to tell you the truth about 60% of the time. For doctors and nurses, it always hovers between 85 and 90%. So you trust me, and hopefully you'll trust me in the consulting room. But trust is hard won and easily lost. And if we look at across the pond in the USA, the trust in doctors has plummeted 75%. So it's not an automatic given that just because I can examine your private parts at 7 a.m. in the morning, which quite often I do, that you automatically trust me. So what is the risk and what is the re reducing? Why is trust reducing and why am I very concerned? Clearly, we're seeing some, the symptoms of it, increased litigation. You're encouraged to complain. In fact, you're more encouraged to complain than you are to give me a com compliment for my uh, advice. There's increasing doubt whether I'm telling you the truth in the consulting room. And you are more reliant on Dr. Google. And you come in with Dr. Google and, and, and say, well, this is what I want and this is what I have. And for some specialties, uh, and I'd say in particular paediatrics, the, 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 the technical issues, the difficult issues are not being played out in the consulting room anymore, but they're being played out, as we see with Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, in the High Court. But probably the biggest risk to trust, and, and you've heard a little bit about this, is the marketization of healthcare. Now, like blood... Healthcare is too precious to leave to the market. And where you see failure in trust, you often, in fact, increasingly see money is the underlying cause of why that trust has, has been reduced. And you've already heard a little bit. Uh, when I looked up at what's going on with unscrupulous doctors, but also unscrupulous health system, there was a, a, a campaign in India to offer uh, very cheap uh, services to rural areas and on, on, given a... Uh, doctors were given a certain fee, 
to look after people. Uh, and the more they did to these people, the more they got. And there was something like 1,800 unnecessary hysterectomies performed on young women as a consequence of that. Um, as a consequence of money being in that process. If you look at the U.S. health market and the figure I've got from 2012, $750 billion, $750 billion on unnecessary tests, operations, investigations, uh, and treatments, which will make people sicker. So you can see that where you begin to have mistrust, you then leave a space for the quacks, the crooks, and the downright anti-expert, which is what I think is coming at the moment. But I think the medical profession is doing this to themselves. I agree with Kevin to a certain extent. I think we are doing it, me, as your doctor. I'm becoming increasingly performance-managed to deliver care that I really don't have confidence that I'm doing on your behalf. And I'll give you three small examples. We've got a, a so-called pandemic of vitamin D deficiency. Well, it really doesn't make sense. And I, would, I don't want you to admit it, but I imagine in this audience, 20% of you are on vitamin D supplements. No evidence at all. In fact, there's now anti-evidence that we're lowering the threshold for, for diagnosis of deficiency. And there are whole populations now uh, who, who are on vitamin D for no reason whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned and reading the evidence. Statins, cholesterol-lowering drugs. Again, enormous uh, industry in making me make you go on a statin. Uh, with, and I'm not going to go into the literature, but in terms of life-saving, there's very little evidence in terms of reducing the risk of non-fatal heart attacks ever so slightly. But there's also a, enormous uh, enormous uh, interest in what the, the consequences of that. And one that I'm very interested in is depression. Uh, recent NICE guidelines almost ruled out treating depression with basic counselling, i.e. psychotherapy, and instead everybody had to have cognitive behavioural therapy. Again, very counterintuitive. So we are doing this to ourselves as doctors. And at the extremes of mistrust, as you've heard, we've got the issues uh, around Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans. So trust is hard to gain and very easily lost. And the reason why the system works, why currently, and I'd say this is in the NHS, why the system works is because you still have trust in me to deliver the healthcare, not based on money being part of the, that, that negotiation. But as I've said to you, as I'm becoming mistrustful myself of those who are asking me to do things on your behalf, and as I too am fearful of, of raising my, my concerns, because as you know, people who whistleblow rarely do very well. I mean, I do raise concerns on your behalf, as many others do, including a very brave lady called Margaret McCartney. But as this happens... As you start to do things which you don't firmly believe that have no faith validity, as we begin to, as I, as your doctor, begin to mistrust those very institutions that are giving me this advice in order to pass on to you, and we're now seeing problems with NICE, with Cochrane, with the GMC, and the Bauer-Garber recent case, then I think you are right to mistrust doctors. But I think also you are, it, 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 it's a fearful way to go. So finally, ladies and gentlemen, what can we do about it? It boils down to, if we want to maintain the system that we have and have trust in doctors, then we, as GPs, as a GP, I need the time to consult with you. I need to be able to deliver continuity of care with you. And I need to be able to question those masters who are making decisions 
on your behalf and asking me to do them and asking where, what their conflicts are and what their transparency is. Thank you very much. Um, so thank you to all the speakers. So I suppose there's kind of blanket agreement generally amongst everyone and that was done intentionally. Um, but what I was hoping to do was we've kind of offered you the spectrum of this idea of trust in, in medical experts from the kind of individual to the social. We have historical aspects, even some philosophical. So I'd love to invite some of your questions if you have any. So if we start over here. I'm wondering if trust is actually the, the right thing we should be talking about. I feel like I should be an informed participant in my healthcare rather than someone who's having to make a trust decision with my practitioner. Last year I, I took part in a medical trial and I was really struck at how much information I think we had to spend about an hour going through what would happen on the trial, what the consequences would be, and getting very explicit consent to every part of the process. And it, it really felt to me like the first time I'd had a proper conversation with a practitioner rather than going, should I do this or not? What's, what's my feeling? I have a lot of trust in my GP. Well, I have more trouble with things like, like NHS Direct. I sometimes get the impression you know, they, they want to overscribe and um, they'll say, see, your, see your GP and then the GP say too many people will come and see us. One interesting thing, I had an operation about 18 months ago where the surgeon says, oh, this, this was to repair a hernia. He says, oh, do you want me to do this, you know, with keyhole surgery? And I, said, I was right to say yes, but I thought, is it really the time to ask someone, you know, when they're about to go under the knife, you know, an anaesthetic and, uh, and, uh, and, and maybe that's the issue. <laughs> And the third interesting thing, I had my, what's it called, the check every, every five years. And um, the practice nurse said, well, actually, according to my um, algorithms, you, you, you don't have enough exercise. Look at you, you probably do have enough exercise. It's probably because you do lots of walking, but you don't visit the gym. The algorithms seem to want you to visit the gym and what have you. They also said, oh, you're probably about five kilograms with five pounds too lightweight. So you wait till the 1st of January. And I thought, am I... Are you just blindly following algorithms? Is this the way to go? <laughs> so my, my question is about the notion of a good death and uh, to what extent the medical profession should get involved in that. And particularly, I, mean, I can foresee that there are people who would like to have assisted suicide, especially if they want the rights to be cryonically preserved and they think well, in the future maybe the, the scientists of the far future could bring me back to life but not if my brain has all turned to mush with some uh, neurodegenerative disease and so if somebody is dying of a, a brain failure they might wish to be put to death more quickly so they have more chance in the future and it's called not euthanasia, but cryothanasia. Do you think doctors should be at least enabling that if, if patients and their family have got a strong view that that's what they would like? Or do you want to fight against it at all costs? I guess, Kevin, you've written on some related topics. You may have something to say on that. One of the things which I think sickens me is, and we saw it more with Charlie, Charlie Gard, is when these situations arise, they seem to be infested by people who come from all over the place. They take over the situation, hypermedia there, and you see parents, and the, the look on, I'll never forget the look on Charlie Gard's mother's face as she was going to the High Court for the last time, people waving balloons, other people spitting on people going into Great Ormond Street, other people whose children were dying, being vilified by people who were absolutely frothing at the mouth. I know, I have no idea where that comes from, but it's worrying. And then when the children, in Charlie Gard's case, you know, he, he was going to die, his batteries were out, his mitochondria, there was no way that child was going to survive. 
then these people disappear back to where they came from, leaving the parents utterly shredded. And I, I, I'm a retired GP, so you know, one deals with these things. And, and um, you know, it absolutely leaves me flabbergasted. But these people infest these cases, and it sickens me, and I don't know what it means about the society we're living in. Lovely. So, Richard, do you want to come back on... There's a couple of questions. Sure. So it was, um, concern. In that procedure when you're, you're, you, know, you, you, you wanted some more information... Uh, how much would have been enough information in that situation? Like, so we, we often try and measure this concept of information need, and uh, that will hopefully, you know, if you satisfy someone's information needs, uh, that will reduce their level of decision conflict. Um, so I think working with a health professional is a good way to satisfy those information needs, uh, because I think sometimes when we go off on our own, uh, we can never really hit the bottom. So um, what I try and recommend with anyone that's having a conversation about uh, information is to uh, uh, give uh, overview information uh, and then uh, see, check back and see, has that, uh, has that satisfied you or would you like to go into some more detail? Um, and, then, and then kind of continue that process until all of those needs have been satisfied. Uh, but I think, yeah, like the major issue we have in any of, of healthcare is the amount of time that you have to ask these kind of questions. Well, it's, is it? Yeah. It's, it's also go. knowledge. Uh, I mean, not to be paternalistic, but you go to medical school for six years, you train for a further 10 years, and therefore, whatever happens, you cannot have the same knowledge mm. that I have. It doesn't mean you can't be informed and have choices. This came to me when my mother-in-law was dying. Now, bear in mind, I'm a doctor, a very experienced doctor. And the doctor said, do you, to all of us, me, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, do you want palliation, surgery, radiotherapy, radiotherapy and palliation? And this whole list went on. And I looked at this doctor, this young doctor, and, and I held my father-in-law's hand. He's blind, and my mother-in-law. And I just said to this doctor, doctor, if this was your mother, what would you do? And he told us what to do, and we did it. And I'm not saying that I... And I could have spent 10 years researching. Well, I couldn't because she'd have been dead, but, you know, whatever. So clearly, the more complex the process, the, more, the rarer the process, if you want to have a, 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 some of my patients who have BRCA gene and want to have bilateral mastectomies and, and their ovaries, they do a lot of research, and they come to me, and I, they know more about it than I do. But on the whole, when you are sick, you are in a disadvantage. Real disadvantage. Real, real, real. You're anxious. You're worried. So I think this is where the trust... This is why I worry, really worry, about the influence of money. Because I knew that young doctor was not going to be paid any extra or less by his decision. Full stop. The concern now is, of course, as we become more marketized, does he get more money for offering surgery? Should we be doing surgery on 88-year-olds, as one of my patients really? Why are they offering this to an 88-year-old when I know that? I mean, the patient will never leave hospital. So we have to hang on to this, and we have to really question the underlying motives, not necessarily knowledge. And just to pick up the algorithm issue, yeah, the computer says no. I think clearly algorithms tell us all sorts of things, and it's, again, the pervasion of where mistrust happens, because if the computer tells you something... Well, it's an algorithm. It's not a human being that's telling you. So I think we need to watch that. Well, sorry, can I just come back yeah. on that? The, um, so we like to think that the, the healthcare professional has the knowledge, 
But the healthcare professional is often a, a mouthpiece for the system's recommendation. So the system well, yes, does the journey. Yes, it's recommendations for NICE, and, and it, of yeah. course, and that's why I said in my bit, I have to trust NICE. I yeah. have to trust Cochrane, but I'm beginning, a bit like when you first realise you don't trust your parents. <laughs> it's a real terrible thing when you find out your parents lie, isn't it? It, it? It's one of those great existential crises. And for me, it's an existential crisis to, th crisis to think I'm beginning to doubt the evidence coming out of NICE that they have been infiltrated by lobby groups who do not ha and they're not going through the same rigour as they did a decade ago. Michael? Yes, I think that's, that's a very f familiar experience. I think uh, on the algorithms, I, I've got good reason to be uh, sceptical about algorithms. I don't know if people notice. Public Health England published this thing a few weeks ago, uh, big all headlines that, uh, according to their research and the people do these uh, questionnaires, that um, four-fifths of adult men in Britain, have ha uh, the age of their heart is 10 years or more older than their actual chronological age and encouraging people to do this questionnaire online and to see where they, they fit into this. So in the spirit of inquiry, I subjected myself to this algorithm. And I have to tell you, you are looking at an 81-year-old heart here. <laughs> yeah, it's a good job I'm not of a nervous disposition and uh, I'm highly sceptical about the value of these statistics that are fed into these algorithms. And I have no risk factors whatsoever, I, you know, without going into revealing a vast amount of personal detail. I have no risk factors whatsoever in these matters, but... 81, you know. That, so one of the issues behind what Claire was saying about the, the, the pressures on GPs to prescribe all sorts of medication is what's known as QOF, the Quality Outcomes Framework. And the computer sitting in the corner of every GP surgery is urging people on the basis of a lot of algorithms that pretty well, the result of which is that pretty well everybody over the age of 50 is taking a handful of tablets, statins, blood pressure tablets, a whole, a, a, all sorts of stuff. And... Ten years on from Quaff, the research showed the internal study that they commissioned themselves to evaluate, because it was claimed at the outset that spreading out these, the results of these various epidemiological studies on the value of these medications would save 65,000 lives. It turned out it saved none. That was the upshot of ten years later. And so this is Claire's point, is that we are being, becoming considerably to doubt the reliability of these guidelines. And... That's a problem for patients because patients on the basis of this are being vastly over-medicalized and over-treated. And there are significant adverse effects of some of these uh, uh, treatments which tend to be downplayed. Um, I've been rather surprised. I've just recently come back into medical practice after being out for a few years to find so, there are so many old people. People start on this in the, in the 70s and they're over 90. You go and see these old people. They're taking a statin, they're taking vitamin D, they're taking all... There's no evidence whatsoever of any... They're taking stuff for dementia that wouldn't work whatever age they were. And, you know, they're taking a half a dozen tablets and they're falling down the stairs as a, as a result of it. So these are real problem areas for contemporary medical practice and they're, they're, they're undermining doctors' confidence in the system and they're undermining patients' confidence in doctors. Well, I mean, my problem with assisted death is uh, not so much... If somebody wishes to, to kill themselves in order to keep their body for cry, I, I, you know, there's not much. I wouldn't advise it. I, I would probably try and stop it if, if I was there. But, you know, somebody can do that, and there's not much we can do to stop it. I have a real problem with the assisted aspect of, of suicide or death because I think that's the real problem is when... Uh, a doctor, and there's, there's absolutely no need for a doctor to get involved 
in this, perhaps with the cryo-euthanasia, perhaps you might want to get some advice of what's the best way to die rather than shooting yourself in the head, which, of course, would not be a, a fantastic way of preserving your brain. But, I mean, it strikes me that the problem is, is in the assistance. And in normal cases, if, if death is what you really want, there's no reason why a doctor should provide that any more than a policeman or a lawyer or a philosopher um, in, in those kind of instances. So I, I just have a problem with, with um, the assistance aspect. Uh, just in relation to Charlie Gard, it's very interesting, uh, the question that you uh, offered. First of all, uh, I happen to know one of the people that was very involved in the Alfie Evans and was vilified in, in the Daily Mail uh, for this. And I have to say, I also know somebody who was there at the Liverpool thing, and she said that none of the stories that they told in the Daily Mail were actually true, that nobody was spitting and there was no... So I think, first of all, there, there are agendas that are going on here um, on behalf of the NHS who, are, who have a big PR uh, department and are, are very on top of these things. Uh, that's not to say that I think it's right that Christian Concern got involved in, in the whole thing. But you can see where the breakdown of trust arrives, which is that when the doctors and the courts overstep their boundaries, and not with Charlie Gard, that was a bit more ambivalent, but certainly with the Alfie Evans case, it was clear that there was a fairly empty vessel who had no, you know, there, there's nothing, and yet they were discussing how much this being was going to suffer, and this is how many angels are condensed on the head of a pin. It's a, it's a meaningless question, and so they put the parents through this, rather than what they should have done, which is to say, we can no longer care for this child and we will not medically intervene in this case anymore. It's up to you whether you want to take your kid to Italy and do all of these things. We can tell you exactly what will happen with this, or pretty well what will happen, but basically it's now in your court. This child is yours and we are discharging this child. And that was a real problem with that, is, is, um, the, that I think creates a lack of trust. Can I just have one more plea, yeah. which is that as a patient who is not anywhere, stop asking me questions for, for, as a GP. You know, don't say, would you like this or would you like... Basically, what I want is for you to say, this is what you should do. The this is what you should do. It's decision-making. It's again part of the industrialization Sorry. of healthcare that came from the States, I hate to tell you, that we are not allowed now, or becoming less allowed, to, to say to you, you should. We have to offer you choices. But then you have to expect the next question I'm going to ask I hate is, it. what I, would you do well, we're not if allowed you were to. in you're my in the States, situation? If you're in my America, GP does do it. So. I do it as well, but it, we're in performance <laughs> managed for not doing it, and actually you could now complain. In, in the States, if you're, you cannot offer a view. So when I said the doctor said, this is what he would do, I doubt in 10 years' time he would be allowed to give me that view. And this is what we have to stop, because I agree with you. I want, when I went for my caesarean section, I didn't want a whole series of choices. I just wanted the, to trust the doctor. So I think it is up to us, but it's also up to us, to fight the bodies that are reducing the trust in the system. Hmm. Right, we'll go back out to the floor. Continuity of care is what I wanted to talk about. And I think as far as... Uh, I'm also a GP, and I've been a GP for 30-odd years, and I was running a single-handed practice, which is very rare nowadays. But what I did find was my patients... I knew my patients, and they knew me. And we worked together with, our, with, our, with their health concerns. And in that way, there was an enormous amount of trust. 
and, 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 and it worked really well. What's happening now is that general practice is being completely fragmented and a move towards super, so-called super practices, which, and where you will never see the same doctor twice. And I think it's a great shame that that, 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 that process is going on and, and small practices are being phased out. So I'm another GP, I'm afraid. And in many ways, You've still been in the consulting room. My, it's a good place my, to have a medical emergency. My, my, col- <laughs> my, my colleague at the back has stolen one of my questions, which we used to do as, uh, throughout my career. I've seen the, the change of, um, of, of work from a personal GP to an uh, impersonal person at the end of the phone. Uh, and I ended my career um, often by spending a whole day never, never seeing a patient eye to eye, but simply answering questions on the phone, hopefully well enough. But so, so, so I'll move on to another one of points to our, our psychology expert here, um, whether anyone who comes with an inclination to either yes or no, whether there's uh, any intervention which r- truly changes that, whether they always go and find information which simply reinforces their initial point of view. Um, so I'd like to hear a bit more about that. And also um, whether anyone on the panel feels that um, um, education in schools to um, improve um, scientific things generally and ideally to teach everyone how to read and understand a randomised control trial would be helpful um, to have better discussions with the health professionals at the end of the day. Well, I'm not a retired GP, but I I am a retired community paediatrician, just to switch the thing. I wanted to get back to this um, point about the wider political... Um, and social um, influences on people's trust in the medical profession. Um, And um, I know Mike has written extensively on the whole question of autism and and MMR, and and that that, that has been the main area of my work previously, in that I worked in an autism diagnostic assessment team for many, many years. And the thing was that parents arrived... Um, obviously in a highly anxious state for a diagnosis of this condition, but they arrived already not trusting the medical profession in any, in any way um, in terms of um, any decisions about the diagnosis. They already came very much influenced by a wider discussion um, which suggested um, obviously, there was this, this important uh, uh, you know, medical report which implicated the MMR in, in, in autism. And already parents had the experience that their children seemed to deteriorate after the MMR, which is not surprising because the developmental um, apparent deterioration occurs round about you know, uh, 14, 15 months most notably. Um, But it meant that you were starting from a position where parents actually believed much more the websites that they got from America and and here. But I wanted to bring it back to the the medical profession because there wasn't a robust challenge to some of those reports, because there wasn't a sort of robust defense of you know, vaccination from the start, it seemed to me we were always at a disadvantage that parents couldn't really develop trust. Just one final point. 
um, parents were already convinced that they had to um, remove gluten and casein and everything else from the diets that children were on. And eventually we, we would say, well, parents will vote with their feet and go elsewhere if they're not given the opportunity to try these things. So we would send them to a pediatric dietitian to try diets that we could be perfectly sure wouldn't work or wouldn't have any effect, just simply to try and retain um, their support for the rest of the services that were in place for their children. So I think I, I, think I would like to, to hear from you a little bit more about that, that wider climate that influences, well, vaccination, but other issues as well. Thank you very much. So we had really great questions. Fragmentation of, of general practice, uh, intervention and education, and then a bit more about the wider political stuff, specifically with autism. So Mike, do you want to go first? Well, on that, on that specific question, yeah, I think uh, the medical profession is always on, its, on, the, on the back foot, in, uh, not only in relation to the vaccination, but in the wider world of autism. It's, uh, you know, there's a, people may be familiar, there's a long tradition. You know, what, one thing is that there's no medical or scientific explanation for what causes autism. There's no medical or scientific treatment for autism. So what happens when people bring their children and they're worried about their development to the doctor, then they get a diagnosis at an assessment centre. The first thing they learn from their GP is there's no, the GP's got no idea, the doctor's got no idea what caused it and no idea what to do about it. So that's a difficult thing for parents to live with. And then you go on, on, the, on the net and of course you find people say, well, your doctor's useless, I can tell you what caused it. Uh, it was caused by those vaccines or it was caused by some, some of there's a very long list of possible. Plus, there's a very, very long list of treatments for it, like the diets are, are one of a, of a very long list that people in, in desperation turn to. And of course, there's a, 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 an earlier history of, you know, where autism in developing in children was attributed to deficient parenting. You know, that uh, Bruno Bettelheim, the American psychologist, particularly associated with that, that school, which is very influential in the States, less so in, and in the continental Europe, actually, but uh, not so much in Britain, but still had a legacy that uh, it was the, the refrigerator mother, the, uh, the term that uh, the, the deficiencies of, of the parenting that caused the development of autism. So that was a cause of a difficult context. And I think, as has been said, you know, one of the problems that it, when the vaccine scares came along, the medical world, the scientific world, was very slow in challenging the whole Wakefield case, hoping that if they, I think they thought, if we ignore it, it'll go away. That was the general uh, sentiment. And so they, they, uh, it allowed it to gather a certain momentum. Things like, one of the interesting things about the diet, that people may know, a gluten-free, casein-free GFCF diet has been one of the most popular interventions. There's still, to this day, no randomized controlled trial of whether that works or not. Actually, it's extremely difficult to construct such a trial and very, very expensive. I know people who've put uh, applications every year, year after year, to the Medical Research Council to get grant for, to do such a study. It still hasn't been done. So it's, and there, there have been some studies done that are not very robust, but there's certainly no evidence that it works. But a conclusive systematic study that uh, explores it has really not been done. So in that situation, people will, will pursue that. And so I think, uh, and then there's been a whole proliferation of quacks and charlatans around that. And that's the other uh, area where the medical profession is very slow to challenge that. Uh, I think actually over the last few years, one of the 
merciful benefits of the departure of Andrew Wakefield to Texas is that it's taken that uh, uh, whole world to some extent with him. It discredited, just as the, the MMR autism link was discredited, so were these wider uh, uh, quacks and charlatans who were very strong supporters of the Wakefield campaign. They also were discredited. And so parents, I think, have, have, are less inclined to pursue those things than, than they used to be. But I think it's still important to... We need to keep up a... I mean, I keep an eye out uh, on these, uh, and they have conferences, and it's important to go along and challenge them. Um, we do that. Claire, there was a question about sort yeah, of breakdown I, I, of GPs. I mean, this the question was about continuity. Unfortunately, access versus continuity is a constant. So you have a choice. You either have access or you have continuity, but you can't have both. And what I mean by that, ladies and gentlemen, we have a current drive, or at least the last Secretary of State for Health, uh, to have almost 24-7, uh, eight-way access to GPs. Uh, you can have access to me now probably in the lavatory. You can, uh, you, know, you can go and have your cervical smear on Christmas morning, as I have done a cervical smear on a patient on Christmas morning. So whilst you have access, you cannot have continuity because, sadly, I can't be in the same place twice. The evidence shows, and I'm an evidence-based person, that continuity must trump access. Now, that doesn't mean we have people waiting with heart attacks and chest pain to see a GP, but on the whole, on the whole, only about a third of what I see really needs to be seen that day, and there are other ways of doing that. There are ways, and I am in favour of, of uh, we run something called e-consult. I have a conflict of interest, but there are ways of digitally triaging people. But if you provide continuity, you reduce health costs, you improve uh, health outcomes, and actually what you also do is it, the uh, overall health economy improves, not just uh, the patients that are here, but also the patients who attend hospital and various other things. There's also a weird stat, and I'm sure evidence-based people might can find it, but I was told this and I believe everything I'm told, that if you sort a patient out by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the likelihood of them ever needing to go as an emergency to hospital or, or to seek out-of-hours care is very, very, very reduced. In other words, if you sort out your patients with long-term chronic diseases within the working day through continuity, then the, 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 the flip of that is you reduce the, the need for urgent care. So I absolutely agree, but access versus continuity is, is, is a is a constant. We have to decide what we want. You young ones apparently want quick access. You, you can't wait. 10 seconds with a sore throat. I'm joking, by the way, but on the whole, you can't. You, you can't queue. I hate queuing. I'm from Malta. But you can't have it always. Yeah. First of all, we all have very different Christmas traditions, I guess. I don't, <laughs> don't do those. But um, one of the things that I want to emphasize, and probably where I disagree, uh, probably with Claire a little bit, is that I think the problem is a general moral issue rather than a, a specific trust in medicine. I think it goes much beyond uh, marketization. I completely agree with you about marketization. I don't think healthcare is, is best delivered on a market system. The U.S. system is ridiculously, um, ridiculously oh, uh, inefficient, and uh, I couldn't give you examples, um, but... 
there, it's a terrible system, but I don't think it's simply because of marketization that all of these issues of trust are breaking out. These issues extend far beyond medicine. Uh, you just have to think of the sort of conspiracy theories to do with business, to do with uh, space, to do with all sorts of diff various different things. We have a generalized problem of trust in society, which I think medicine is actually simply part of. Uh, and I don't think it would be cured by, by, marketized, by getting rid of marketization. Um, we, in the 1960s, people put their trust in business to an extraordinary uh, extent. You know, we're talking 85% trust in business leadership. How many would, would uh, trust business leadership today? It would be very, very low. And yet, the other thing that strikes me is that, that medicine is improving so rapidly through the years that we're talking about that we have this idea that it's getting worse and worse and worse, and yet health outcomes are far better than they were even 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, it, in my lifetime, it's, it's increased huge amounts. So I don't think, I think the problems at basis are moral rather than, than you know, structural. Richard, do you want to talk about there was a... I'm yeah, changing so minds and education, if, you if the idea of is there some sort of intervention that could be brought into place to change minds, and um, I often think that if the trust has been lost in the GP or, or, or someone is coming in that has low trust, um, what's often going to happen is they're going to be caught by someone else in society that has an, an answer for them and that they trust more. Um, so, what? I'm starting to come to the conclusion of is that we need other groups in society that are also evidence-based uh, that are able to catch people when they do fall through the cracks because it, uh, it looks like it's always going to be some section of the population is going to lose trust at some point in the healthcare system. We try and make it as resilient as possible um, but uh, that's going to happen. So uh, the intervention I want to see is uh, community groups with the ability to access information and communicate that um, in the, a similar way to the healthcare system, but is detached enough that we're not running into any of these um, kind of financial um, uh, conflicts of interest that are reducing trust in that way. Um, so that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in in the future. But yeah, like what can you possibly say in that situation to turn someone around is, is almost the wrong way to look at it. It's, it's, the, the, it's definitely the way you say it is more important. <laughs> and yeah, like trust is something you build up over time. If you are changing your GP every week when you go to see them, yeah, you don't have uh -huh. the opportunity for trust to build up. Um, so yeah, without a doubt, I agree on that point, yeah. So we've probably got time for, we'll try and fit in as many questions as possible. So we've got one here. Can we get another microphone here? Uh, right, thanks. Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm a trade union official, and of course nobody trusts us at all. Although I do represent radiographers, and I think they have quite a high level of, of trust among the, the general public. Um, I just think we're, uh, we're sort of, by and large, talking about two different issues here, and um, I think we need to separate them out. I think the issues around trust are the sorts of things that, that Claire has mentioned and I think are you know, not just worthy of but, uh, but are very necessary to analyse and get, get to the root of. My concern is that at the same time we also talk about the um, Alfie Evans, Charlie Guards and in fact the MRR um, situation which I don't think um, we should do. I think we should accept those and this might sound a bit odd. I take on board the point about 
outsiders coming in and, and latching themselves onto those cases. But at the, at the heart of those things, it's just parents who don't want to lose their child. And our own analysis sometimes is politicising that. You know, that's, that's all it is, uh, really. And I think in the, you know, in the medical profession, we simply just have to accept that, accommodate that, and not let that influence or, or uh, alter our assessment of whether trust has been lost or not, which I think is a different, different issue entirely. I wonder if we expect too much of doctors and too little of ourselves. Um, and a, I was watching a clip from a Grayson Perry uh, film recently where he was attempting to recreate ritual um, around the country um, because he's quite perceptively noticed that there seems to be a lack of meaning. So his idea was, right, we'll kickstart meaning through ritual. And he did one in a neonatal clinic, a hospital, I think, um, and... It was kind of a bit weird, but, you know, he created these little gold babies and gave them out to midwives, um, lowered the lights. And he said, this is the nearest thing we have to a state or national religion, the NHS. And I, I was like, oh, Christ, you know, um, I don't want my doctor as my priest. I don't want that. And, and, and of course, he meant it in a very positive way. Uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the NHS, and I was editing a film recently about it, and, you know, everybody... Uh, uh, loves the NHS, the whole of the Labour Party's policies seem to be about adoration of the NHS. But it, it really, I think it shows a, a, a peculiar problem we've got, where we seem to be overloading medicine and health with meaning, um, supplanting something that is absent from our lives, and it can't give it to us. And we are... Um, we're in a conf I think we're sort of in a confused moment where, and maybe with the, the, the parents we've been talking about, that was a messy struggle for, you know, regaining m their moral ground, their moral decision-making vis-a-vis, you know, well-intentioned. Um, and I think one of the scary aspects of this, more for me now, is the expansion from, you know, possibly in 1950, mental illness to now well-being and mental health, where the health, we, we, we're at the extent where, you know, the NHS and doctors, uh, whether they want to or not in many circumstances, feel that it, it, they are almost engineering character and personality in terms of well-being and, how we, and, 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 and in encouraging us to monitor ourselves mm -hmm. through health as the prism of, of a sort of new form of morality, rather than us going, you know what, fix my body. Yeah and I'll, I'll get on with my life. Um, it was just one quick question about um, the kind of, the limits of where doctors' remits might lie. And in, a, in an instance like a vaccine, there might be super clear evidence that it's going to have a particular benefit um, if it's implemented. Um, but where doctors might be uh, dealing with mental health issues, perhaps their remit has expanded compared to historically. Um, does that, um, does that kind of jeopardize credibility um, or does it mean that that's exactly the case where experience is needed in those issues where there isn't really clear evidence and it's actually personal experience of treating patients, which is where kind of a doctor needs to be present, even if it might not kind of go a particularly causal fashion? Um, okay. Claire? Can I, because I think your question is, is a good one, but I think 
there's two issues in your question. Number one, the NHS. The reason why we adore the NHS is because of the system of the NHS, free at the point of use, according to need, not, uh, not want, and uh, freeing us from the tyranny of, of money and having to worry about it. So it's the system. It's also the system that links us to our idolised past. It, and it is also the last vestige of togetherness that we as a society have. It's essentially our social unconscious. New immigrants will know the NHS logo more than they'll know Wembley Stadium or, or, or whatever. So that. The second bit in your question, which is where I think you're sl it's slightly confusing, is the role of doctors. Okay. Now, be careful what you ask for. We are, we are knocking doctors off their pedestal. Doctors now are no longer... Uh, they have all the accountability and very little authority and freedom to do what they like. Be careful what you ask for. The only reason you get the health care you get is because there is a fantastic collusion between doctor and patient. So the doctor does the things, does the horrible things that nobody else wants to do, does the shit, goes into the swampy lowlands with their patients without technical solutions because, the pay, because we are on a metaphorical pedestal. It doesn't mean I'm better than you, but I am different than you because you task me to do the things, and nurses, by the way, this isn't just doctors, to do things you do not want to do. You do not want to clean vomit and feces and, and go in and, and look at bleeding aortas or whatever. So be careful because once we start to neutralise that, as we're seeing already, doctors are walking away because they're walking away, because they, they no longer want to contain the pain that you as society have, have allowed them to contain because of being on this pedal. So, so I think we do need a much bigger debate, because it's so easy to say some of the things, and I know you said it in the, in the best possible way, so easy to say this, that, that doctors need to be this, that and the other, but we will then lose what we have, which is uh, doctors who do things that we want them to do at the moment that, that we need them to do it. For, for many people, including nurses, very little remuneration of what they're doing. Yeah, just a very interesting question. And it's something I come up against in the, the whole assisted dying issue. Because it, it, it is, um, you know, where do we draw the lines here? I mean, I think it's, it's with death. Death is now something that is done to you rather than something that ap actually happens. And so people blame doctors. So this is part of the whole Charlie Guard issue, is that people are saying, oh, you have done this to my child. Now, of course, doctors have not done this to, to their ch th that child. Uh, death is uh, just, sorry if this is bad news, but it's going to happen. And it, it doesn't matter whether there's a doctor involved or not. It's, it's, it will happen at some stage. And I think people don't accept that. But if you offer death as a choice, then you give that idea that, that oh, you can have death or you can not have death. And a lot of times you don't actually get that choice, um, particularly when you're hit by a bus. But, and so the problem is that they, they you, know, you personify disease as if disease is responsible for something. It's a, it's a sort of decentering of responsibility that's a real problem because you personify disease as if that's something somebody's done, and you objectify the actual human decisions that might be done. And I think doctors suffer from that in the end, and, and that they, they uh, really... Uh, so for me, the, the, the problem with assisted suicide in some ways is the culture that it brings, which is this idea that you can have death as an option and that death is a treatment. Uh, I think that adds to the whole problem. Yeah. Uh, lovely. So we'll have our... Um Final uh, minute-long pictures. So, in the reverse order of in which they spoke. So, first up is Claire. 
Well, I th think we've all generally agreed, and clearly we would agree, this audience, because you don't come here on a Sunday morning uh, if you're not interested in this. And I think what my sort of take of this is, is where I started from, which is that trust in doctors is vital, absolutely vital. And the more we start to erode that trust, the more we're all going to suffer. And then we've got the nuances, the Charlie Garden, and all that. But in the, f the fundamental end of it is that if when you go into that consulting room you don't believe that the decision being made about you or with you is in your best interest but it's been made on some shareholder's interest or some, some other interest, uh, then I think we've be the beginning of the end of, of, of medicine and we will end up into the world of quackery and charlatans and we will be all worse off. So make sure that you challenge, uh, you're in a position to challenge and in a position to help others in a way to, to start looking at this debate in a sensible way because you are really the ambassadors for what we've been talking about on this platform. Um, so we didn't really touch on this a great deal but um, I spend a lot of time talking about um, anti-vaccination and uh, talking to people that uh, really just kind of want to tear down the arguments of anti-vaccination uh, or, or kind of the pseudoscience of, of goop, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, quackery that she's putting out there. And I think there's a lot of zeal to kind of knock those things down. Uh, and I agree that they should be challenged, but we often neglect the idea of building something up. So building communities that are able to communicate in an evidence-based way uh, is what I really want to focus on next. And like, so with the healthcare system, it's, it's being able to, yeah, uh, how do we build the resilience into it? rather than blaming other people for losing trust. I think we often kind of other it onto other people that they've lost trust and it's their fault for losing trust. Uh, I want to kind of shift that dialogue a bit. That's, that's kind of the future of my work that I want to try and do, but yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, to, I've, I've said most of what I want to say, so I won't take long. I, I just think the problem with trust is that the key question that you're coming to when you visit your GP or when you when you confront anybody is do we regard the person who we're confronting as somebody who is like us and who will make decisions in our interest just as we would and I think the problem is that we're very alienated from other people and it, it, you know most of the times we trust people but it's very very tentative and we're very ready to move quickly back into that era of distrust I can't think of anything to do about it except to draw, you know, slightly stronger moral lines, which is what I, I'm sort of trying to do with the assisted death issue. Uh, and I think, um, and that's the only way it's really going to happen. Otherwise, we're going to simply get into these, you know, every once in a while there will be an Alfie Evans or a Charlie Gard, and it will come back and back, and we will go through these, these kind of things again and again and again. Yeah, uh, Michael Gove notoriously said people have had enough of experts, and I think What's true is that people have, have rejected actually not the authority of experts, but the use of experts to compensate for the loss of authority and legitimacy of wider systems of government. And that's the essential problem here, that 
And, uh, you know, we've seen governments use all sorts, uh, sort of outsource all sorts of uh, authority to various sorts of experts in all sorts of area. And what you see is that that sort of technocratic governance undermines the authority of the expertise on which it rests. And I think that's what's happening also in the, in the medical world, that what we see is experts reaching beyond their sphere of expertise, and this is particularly striking in the sphere of public health. You know, so, for example, a doctor might be able to tell you that alcohol is causes certain effects on your liver, but a doctor has no authority whatsoever to prescribe minimum pricing for alcohol as a way of dealing with that. It's a social policy. It's not a, a, a legitimate sphere of medical expertise. And if a medical expert comes on the television pontificating in that way, people have a right to be sceptical about that. And I think that, to the extent that doctors do that, and they do it a lot, they undermine public confidence and trust in the, in the, in the, in the medical world. And I think that's the essence of this, this whole problem. There's one, just to leave you on one final quote, there's a good book written on this question about vaccine hesitancy by a guy called Stuart Bloom. And he just makes it by, in this wider context, that refusing vaccines might then be one of the small acts of rebellion by which people with little power express their discontents. And I think we're seeing that. Okay,